man. All right. Hopefully you found your way to uh, Judges chapter 13. Just a warning. We might go a couple minutes over. Judges chapter 13. So remember, this is the story of Samson. Samson, one of the strangest stories in the entire Bible. Here is a here was a man who seemed to have a lot of privileges, a lot of advantages, uh, that really could have and probably should have set him up to be the greatest judge of all of the judges, but it didn't really turn out that way. This is the story of the life of a man who was so richly anointed with potential for blessing and victory, and yet his life instead is marked by disgrace and spiritual defeat. So Samson was to be a leader in Israel. He was to be God's instrument to deliver his people. But unfortunately, his walk with God is so erratic at best and marked with far too infrequent contact with God at all, to say the very least. Well, how could it be that someone with all the advantages given to them by God could so easily fall short of his outstanding potential? How could that be? Well, that's what we want to look at tonight as we continue our look at the life of Samson, the Nazarite. Now, since it's been a few weeks since we've been in this text, let's quickly recap the highlights in the first uh, verses here. Verse 1 says, after the death of Jephthah, Israel once again, what? Did evil in the sight of the Lord. That's the seventh time now we've seen this cycle of sin, right, that we've that we've been uh, covering all through the previous uh, 12 chapters. This time the Lord gave them over to the hands of whom? The Philistines. And our text tells us that the Philistines oppressed the Israelites for 40 years, right? The longest of any of the oppressions. However, unlike every other oppression that we have seen so far in Judges, what's the one thing that's missing here in the cycle of sin that we don't see? Everybody remember, it's the... No cry for deliverance, right? No supplication, right? We have the sin, we have the servitude, no supplication, right? No supplication. No crying out to God at all. The reason for that is that the people were enjoying a great time of affluence, right? The Philistines didn't come in and conquer like the other nations, didn't come in and just kind of grind them down and steal their crops and so on. They did something a little sneakier. They assimilated them, right? They they tried everything they could to marry into their families and have their sons marry their daughters and their daughters marry their sons so that they could assimilate them in. Secondly, the Philistines were uh, had a lot of iron. They were iron workers. And so they made the agricultural business of the Israelites, their farming, since they were agrarian, made their life a lot easier, right, to have metal farm implements instead of wooden ones. And so they were able to have higher yields. They were all making more money. They were trading back and forth. So in the Israelites, they felt pretty comfortable with the way things were going. So comfortable in their affluence, so comfortable in their new assimilated families, that they completely reasoned for themselves that God would be okay with whatever they were doing. And in their own eyes, there was nothing really wrong with what they were doing, right? Everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. And at this point, then, we're introduced to a man named Manoah in verse 2 of chapter 13. Manoah is the father of Samson and his wife. We don't know her name. She's just Mrs. Manoah, right, or the wife of Manoah. They're from the tribe of Dan. And the tribe of when the tribe of Dan moved north, Manoah and his wife stayed in the original territory that was the Danites, which was about 15 miles from the Philistine border. 
So they had a lot of contact with the Philistines. And we also see here that Manoah's wife was barren, which would have been exceedingly difficult in any age, but especially in this age, because they viewed it as some sort of chastisement from God. In verse 3, we saw that God finally intervenes. Quite literally, the text tells us that the angel of the Lord appeared to Manoah's wife to tell her that she would have a son. And the angel appears to have come to her not by request. There's no indication that she was asking God to intervene for her barrenness at all, unlike Hannah, right, and others. No, nothing in our text here. However, the angel of the Lord appears not by request, but simply by God's plan. Reinforcing the fact that raising up this deliverer is really a gracious work of God from the very beginning all the way to the end. This is all part of God's plan. And we find out that this angel of the Lord is none other than the pre-incarnate Christ coming to announce this wonderful news. So in verses 4 and 5, again, we're just recapping up to verse 14. So the Lord appears to Manoah's wife and tells her that she would finally have a child and he's going to be a son. He then proceeds to tell her the child was to be raised his entire life under the Nazarite vow. Now, that word Nazir in Hebrew is from where we get the word Nazarite means to separate. Okay, matter of fact, Nazarites were called the separated ones. They were to be separated unto service for the Lord. And with that service for the Lord came very specific restrictions. What were the restrictions of a Nazarite? First, the vow was voluntary and usually for a very specific amount of time. Although Samson and John the Baptist were Nazarites for life, Samuel was as well, right? Dedicated by his mother for life. Note that Samson's status as a Nazarite was neither voluntary. He didn't He didn't volunteer for it like a typical Nazarite vow, nor was it temporary. Okay? He was from birth. And God imposed Samson's function as a Nazarite upon him for a very specific purpose. So remember when we looked at that, isn't it interesting that their problem is that Israel is not separated enough? Right? They're assimilated in. What's God's response? I'm going to send you one who is separated unto me. Right? So he's going to... He's going to break up this little uh, assimilation that they have with the Philistines. So the first one was uh, that it was voluntary and for a specific amount of time. Secondly, it was a special vow of separation and devotion to God, usually connected with a specific mission. Lord, I'm going to set myself aside and take this vow for this mission, for your work, for this amount of time. Remember, we saw that in Acts with Paul, right, didn't we? Where he would set himself aside before a missionary trip and so on. Third, while under the vow, the person could not drink anything made from the vine. Incidentally, all of this is in Numbers chapter 6. And fourth, they could not cut their hair. And then lastly, they would not, were not to come in contact with a dead body. Then in verses 6 and 7 in Judges 13, Manoah's wife rushes to tell her husband that she's just what she's just seen and what the visitor has told her. She described his appearance like that of an angel. However, neither one of them at this point knows that this is the Lord himself. We don't find out that out until verse 16. In verse 8, though, Manoah's wife, Manoah, I'm sorry, listened to his wife and then prayed that the Lord would send the man back to them again. 
And Warren Wiersbe writes, We can't help but be impressed with the devotion of this husband and wife to each other and to the Lord. Because remember what's going on in the time of Judges. This is a time of apostasy. And uh, people are falling away from the Lord. There's anarchy. But there were still some Jewish homes, still some homes that were dedicated to the Lord, that believed in prayer, and believed that God was still working through those prayers, even in the midst of all of that is offensive to God. Then in verses 9 to 11, we found out that God listened to Manoah's prayer and graciously appears to Manoah's wife a second time while she's out in the field. In verse 10, she hurries to find her husband and then reports that the one who had appeared to her earlier has come back. In verse 11, this time Manoah follows his wife and they meet up with this man and Manoah asks the angel if he was the one who had spoken to his wife earlier, to which he answered, I am, right? Which every time we see that, we're like, oh, okay, that should have been a clue. Verse 12, Manoah begins by asking this messenger of God what the boy's life calling would be. In other words, what is this special mission going to be? What is he going to do? You're going to have him raised as a Nazarite? What is, you know, should, how should we be raising him? Is it, is it going to be something musical? I mean, should we, you know, whatever it is, how should we be helping him? Manoah wants to know what God has in mind for this boy, as well as some instructions regarding on how to prepare him for his calling. And remember, we looked at that last time and, and uh, talked about how God doesn't always give us all the full plan, right? He just gives us what we need, and then we have to, we have to move forward in faith and not, not have to have all the details before we move forward. Then in verses 13 through 14, the angel of the Lord answers, but he does not give a direct answer. Do you notice that? He doesn't tell him that. Look at in Judges 13, verse 13 here. So the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, let the woman pay attention to all that I said. She should not eat anything that comes from the vine, nor drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. Let her observe all that I commanded. So he just actually repeats what he told her before. Doesn't give her any new instruction. He ends with, let her observe all that I commanded. Nothing new was added, no further commentary or explanation. So that's where we want to pick it up here tonight in verse 15. In verse 15. So let's look at that together. Verse 15, then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you so that we may prepare a young goat for you. The angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Though you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. Actually, offer it to Yahweh. Okay, that's Jehovah. That should have been a big clue right there again, that this is not just some guy who, with the appearance of an angel, that there's something special going on here. This is the second clue, if you will. So Manoah doesn't exactly get the answer he's looking for, so he invites the angel of the Lord to stay for dinner. Now, some commentators think that Manoah is kind of being sneaky here. He's trying to manipulate God just so he can get some additional information from him. But I believe that he, this is simply ancient Near, Near East hospitality. This is just what you did when you had a guest. Remember when Abraham had the visitors, right? And he prepares the meal for him. And this should strike you as something else that we've, another thing, it's very, very similar to another account with another judge that we read earlier. Do you remember who comes to mind when you start reading this past from this point forward here? For me, it's Gideon, right? Do you remember when the angel of the Lord came to Gideon? And, and virtually the same thing happens. Look at uh, Judges chapter 6. Go back a few pages 
and look at verse 17. In Judges chapter 6, verse 17, this is when the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon. So Gideon said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come back to you and bring out my offering and lay it before you. And he said, I'll remain until you return. Then Gideon went, went and he prepared a young goat, unleavened bread from an ephah of flour. He put the meat in a basket, the broth in a pot, and brought them out to him under the oak and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. The angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand, touched the meat and the unleavened bread. And the fire sprang up from the rock, consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. Then the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. When Gideon saw that he was the angel of the Lord, he said, alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Very, very similar to what's going to happen here, right, uh, with, uh, with Manoah and his wife. Matter of fact, both accounts result in nearly identical outcomes. So let's go back to Judges 13 and see what happens here with Manoah and his wife. Pick it up, verse 17. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name, so that when your words come to pass, we may honor you? But the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? Okay, here's another big clue. Actually, what the, the literal Hebrew is, why do you ask my name? It's too wonderful for you to comprehend. In other words, it's too amazing, too marvelous, too wonderful for you to even comprehend my name, is literally what it says in the Hebrew. So now at this point, Manoah still doesn't realize that this is the angel of the Lord, right? You can see that, see in verse 16 there, right? It says here, uh, the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, blah, blah, blah. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. Okay, so at this point, I'm not sure how he missed it, but he missed it. So he still wants to know more about him. So he asked him his name. The angel of the Lord's response, which should have been another big clue to his identity, but if Manoah has any doubts about who this guy is and what his origin is and what his identity is with the man, this man with an appearance like an angel, that all evaporates in the next few, for few, first, the next few verses. Sorry, Verse 19, so Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering, offered on the rock to the Lord. He performed wonders while Manoah and his wife looked on. For it came about when the flame went up from the altar towards heaven that the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. So as Manoah and his wife are standing there preparing this offering, they're watching the smoke rise from the altar when their guest ascends in the smoke. Okay, I think they know who he is now, right? So they, they've got it. I don't know about you, but this kind of reminds me as like when Christ, remember when the disciples are standing around, right? And Christ descends. You can just imagine them sitting there like, what just happened, right? I was awestruck. What has just happened? At this point, they fall on their faces because they realize they've been in the very presence of God. Verse 21 then. Now the angel of the Lord did not appear to Manoah or his wife again. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. So when the angel of the Lord doesn't return... Manoah and his wife now realize this was no man with the appearance of an angel, nor was it just an angel. This is none other than the angel of the Lord. This was God himself in the flesh. And a great 
fear settles upon Manoah, and he realizes they were just in the presence of the Lord, because Manoah knew that no one can see God and live. And so they're falling on their faces. And since he's pretty sure they're just seeing God, Manoah reasons they're pretty much as good as dead at this point. They're just waiting for something to happen. But in verses 22 and 23, Manoah's wife interjects as the voice of reason. Notice verse 22. So Manoah said to his wife, We will surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had desired to kill us, he would not have accepted the burnt offering and the grain offering from our hands, nor would he have shown us all these things, nor would he have let us hear things like this at this time. So it's Manoah's wife with the voice of reason here. She concludes if God wanted them dead, before the words even tumbled out of their mouth, they'd be dead, right? And he never would have stayed while they prepared the whole offering. I mean, if, if he was just going to kill him, he would have killed him. He, he wouldn't have waited. Well, you know, I guess I'm going to kill him, but I'll wait until they do this offering first, right? So she's reasoning this. He never would have allowed them to stay in his presence as the offering was being presented. He certainly would never have told them they're going to have a child from her previously barren womb. It's a known fact that dead people don't produce many children. So... Besides, if God wanted them dead, they'd be dead already. No doubt about that. There's another purpose for this visit, and it's not killing the parents of the child of the angel of the child the angel of the Lord said they're going to have. So in verses 24 and 25, we find out that the woman gave birth to a son and named him Samson, which in Hebrew means uh, sunny boy or little son, S-U-N, little son. Uh, and the child grew up, and the Lord blessed him. And verse 25, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him uh, in Mena, or I'm sorry, Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtol. So Manoah's wife gave birth to a son. She named him Samson. And here we find out two important facts about this young child. First, God blessed him as he was growing up. I believe that means not just materially. I think that God blessed him spiritually. I think that God blessed him physically, as we know, and perhaps even monetarily, right? God's hand is upon Samson from before he's even born. Secondly, it says the Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him that whenever we read that in Judges, that usually means what? It usually means he's getting prepared with this special empowerment to conquer whoever the nation's army of whoever is, is oppressing Israel. But this stirring in him could also be related to the stirring in Samson's heart to, with a desire to save his people from this Philistine oppression. I believe God was calling Samson to worship him and him alone and not get caught in the assimilation of the Philistines like his fellow countrymen. To not worship the pagan gods and follow their pagan rituals. To not live their life like them. To be separated to follow the example of his godly parents, to honor his Nazarite vow from birth. Now, at this point, if I haven't read, if I hadn't read Judges chapter 14 through 16, I might be inclined to believe that someone who started so well in life would be destined for even greater things in the future. I mean, when you look at Samson's life, if you just cut it off right here, you'd go, man, that Samson is set up, Right. I mean, he's not even born yet, and God's hand is all over this, right? He blessed him. He's stirring in his heart. Uh, you know, I'd be inclined to think, man, he's got a great future, because here's someone who had a miraculous birth, 
that was announced not once but twice by God himself as the angel of the Lord. That doesn't happen every day. He's born into a godly home with two godly parents. That doesn't happen, all that. God also blessed him physically, spiritually, and materially as he grew up. The Lord even stirred him up for great works he had prepared for him to accomplish. It sure seems like he's set and ready to go into full-time service for the Lord. But those expectations come crashing down quickly when we get to chapter 14 and beyond. Something happens. It's true that God will accomplish what he said in Samson's life. Do you remember what his mission would be? It's back in verse 5 of Judges 13. Remember that? He said, you shall conceive, give birth to a son. No razor shall come on his head for the boy. shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. He shall what? Begin to deliver Israel. He wouldn't deliver them, but he will begin this process of it, right? He's certainly not the kind of deliverer that we can look at and use as an example of a godly man whose sole purpose is to honor God through his obedience and his actions. You don't look at Samson's life and go, boy, I want to be just like Samson. Isn't he a wonderful example? I mean, no matter how often, how hard we try to sanitize Samson's life in Sunday school, it's not good. Right? It's not good. You know, he kills thousands from the oppressing nation, but what was his motivation? Mainly revenge and anger. And that anger and revenge stemmed from his inability to get what he wanted when he wanted it. It was selfish, self, uh, self-righteous anger. And even though the things he wanted were immoral and indecent and contrary to his Nazarite vow to be, which he was set aside for the purpose of the Lord, he still wanted to do them. Which teaches us a very valuable lesson is that just because we start well, in ministry, in our walk with the Lord, doesn't mean we always end well. And the Bible is filled with characters that start off very well but end very poorly. Incidentally, if you're ever going to do a self-study and look at this, you're going to find that most of our Bible heroes fail not in the beginning of their walk with the Lord, but at the end of their walk with the Lord, right? I mean, who comes to mind right immediately? David, right? David should jump to your mind immediately, from his battle with Goliath to the adultery with Bathsheba. I mean, how did that happen? How did you go from the pinnacle to the, to the pit, right, 40 years later? And sadly, contrary to popular opinions, our failures with the Lord happen most frequently later in our spiritual life. Beloved, starting well is one thing, but finishing well is what really matters. Finishing well. We be, when we become complacent in our walks and start to presume many things about our spiritual state that possibly we ever should, we get lazy, we get complacent in our walks. We can become enamored with the status we've developed through the years, known as a godly person, a godly man, or a godly woman. We become disillusioned with how susceptible we are to falling, thinking that we're impenetrable anymore, that we've, you know, we're beyond that, that that would never trip us up again, and yet... The pride of life creeps in and blinds us to selfish ambitions or blinds us to lust of the flesh or lust of the eyes. And we can let our pride develop in us a sense of superiority, lending to a critical spirit about others in the body of Christ. We can start saying things like, if they'd only listen to me, if they only do things the way I think they should do things, we'd be a lot better off around here. See, sadly, the arrogance of Samson, the issues with anger, his lust with the flesh, the lust of the eyes, are going to lead to his downfall. 
And yet he had every possible advantage to do great things for God. Even more sadly today, many in our churches are blinded to the same sin in their lives. And despite starting so well, despite perhaps decades of fruitful ministry for the Lord, they are not ending well at all. Starting well is good, but ending well is better. How about you? Where are you at in your walk? Are you still striving to please God, to serve God, to love the Lord in the same way you did when you were first saved? You still have that same passion? Is that still your same desire? Have you become blinded to those besetting sins in your life that are causing you to stumble in your latter years and your walk with the Lord? Do you think you're impenetrable anymore, that you can't get caught up in those things? Beloved, it's not too late. Repent of those things in your life that are causing you to stumble and ask the Lord to restore you to your first love, your first love of the Lord. As Samson will demonstrate for us again and again in these preceding chapters, it's not how well you start, it's how well you finish. And I pray that we would all finish well. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, again. A reminder from your text here today, Lord, as many of us, perhaps even here in this room, have started with such fruitful ministries and then through time, Lord, our hearts get hardened, we get blinded to our own sins, we justify them by ourselves and Lord, we lose that passion and that desire to seek your face in all things. We, we become blinded to those things in our lives.